Thank you very much in, indeed, uh, Nick. And uh, as I said at the uh, reception um, last night, it's, um, it's nice to finish the week in the same country that I started it in. <laughs> I spent my 70th birthday recovering from a coronary bypass operation and trying in a rather personal way to join some of the dots in my life. <coughs> Let me explain. Thanks to the Old Testament psalmist, reaching the age of 70 is regarded as a rather significant occasion. We're told, after all, that the days of our years are threescore years and ten. So get to 70, which neither of my parents managed to do, not by a distance, and you have, as it were, got right round the board. According to Deuteronomy, Moses lived a full 50 years after this milestone, but the 90th Psalm suggests that the 10 years after 70 are pretty hard going, marked by, and I quote, labour and sorrow. It may be fortunate, according to the same text, that this period is soon cut off and we fly away. I note in passing that in the United Kingdom today there are 800,000 people with dementia, a number that will presumably grow as longevity continues to increase. Labour and sorrow indeed for them and for those who care for them. Anyway, at the same time that this occasion for biblical celebration was dominating my thoughts, I was listening to podcasts of Sir Andrew Dilnot's excellent Radio 4 programme on the history of Britain in numbers. Whoever said that statistics are boring. I got to thinking about how my own country had changed in my lifetime. My life doesn't have the sweeping romantic span of Winston Churchill's, from the sabre charge of the 21st Lancers at Omdurman to the explosion of nuclear bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I guess that in my case, from racial segregation in the southern United States and South Africa to the elections of Obama and Mandela, from rationing to Waitrose, <laughs> from telegrams and flickering black and white television sets to the internet and the World Wide Web, is quite a stretch. No wonder social and economic historians have talked about the transformation of Britain in the second half of the 20th century. Trying to understand recent history is difficult. Thomas Mann observed that, and I quote, the pastness of the past is the more profound, the more legendary, the more immediately it falls before the present. Moreover, I suspect that one reason why public figures are reluctant to consider what has happened in Britain during their own lifetimes is because this can easily trigger the charge that one is running Britain down or selling it short. You can easily, all too easily, 
imagine the Daily Mail headline. And yet it's emphatically not my position that Britain is a worse place than it was 50 or more years ago. In many respects, for many people, it is better and so it should be. Yet Britain is clearly a diminished country in terms of our relative economic and political clout. And it still has to resolve the dilemma which has weighed so heavily on our shoulders since we were a part of the triumphant combination that won the Second World War. What is our national interest and how can we best pursue it? Can we still, in Douglas Hurd's phrase, punch above our weight? What is that weight and how much can we realistically punch above it? Yes, life is better for most of us today in some very practical ways. Andrew Dillnott illustrated this in part by recalling P.J. O'Rourke's observation that the best reason for living today is modern dentistry. <laughs> the daughter of a friend of mine asked her father a few years ago whether when she grew up she would have in and out teeth like her grandparents. <laughs> my own grandmother didn't have a tooth of her own in her head and both my parents had several dentures which were popped into bedside mugs at night. We might recall that tooth decay was one of the challenges faced as late as the early years of the 20th century by army recruiters. A visit to the dentist today does not, speaking for myself, bring me out in a cold sweat. And when exactly did I first hear the words dental floss? <laughs> With mouthfuls of our own teeth, we live much longer these days. At the beginning of the last century, the life expectancy for boys was 45 and for girls 49. Those figures had risen to 75 and 80 by 2000 and have continued to rise since then. In England, the proportion of the population over 65 in 1961 was 11% with less than 1% over 85. By 2011, 16% were over 65 and 2% over 85. It's reckoned that by 2051, one in four of us will be over 65 and 7% over 85. The implications for the costs of health and social care and pensions are evident if frequently ducked by politicians. So with greater longevity, dramatic in reductions in infant mortality, rising fertility among women born in the United Kingdom, more births to immigrants of childbearing age, and high levels of net inward immigration since 2000, our population has risen and will continue to do so. The population at the halfway point in the last century was just over 50 million, up from 38 million in 1900. It grew steeply by 10 million, or about 20%, after 1964, with particularly large jumps in 2007, 2008, 2010, and 2013. 
mainly as a result of the movement of workers from other EU countries, such as the ubiquitous and rather useful Polish plumbers. Today our population is over 63 million. By 2037, with the fastest population growth in the European Union, it's reckoned that there will be 73 million of us. The majority of that rise will come from natural population increase, but just over 40% will be the result of immigration. As the century rolls by, we will have a much larger workforce than Germany. Without wishing to contribute to the debate about immigration, I note in passing that the overwhelming majority of immigrants come here to work. 0.8% of EU immigrants claim unemployment benefit after a year. 1.7% of all immigrants make such claims. 4.1% of the native population do so. Net immigration to Germany and Italy has been higher, far higher, in recent years than to the United Kingdom. Over the last century, there was, of course, a net exodus from the United Kingdom of 19.6 million to the benefit of North America, the Antipodes, and South Africa, among others. Immigration has changed the face of Britain quite literally. We probably didn't notice so much when the faces were white. Over 700,000 Irish immigrants, like my own forebears, came to Britain after the famine, and the Jewish population increased from 60,000 to about 300,000 between 1880 and 1920, with the flight from poverty and oppression in Eastern Europe. In the first 50 years of my life, the number of members of ethnic minorities in Britain uh, rose from under 100,000 to over 4 million, about 7% of the population. 2.4 million were from the Caribbean, India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Overwhelmingly, again, they came to work, with our public sector enthusiastically recruiting in their countries of origin. They came here to live, and the rivers, to borrow a famous quote, did not foam with much blood. Though there have been urban riots, sporadically, and their origins certainly included racial factors. Yet my own perception, influenced probably by the aspirations which I attach to the lives of my three mixed-race grandchildren, is that racism has been in decline in Britain. We're properly outraged when our football fans, when our football teams go to Spain, for example, and run the gauntlet of abuse chanted at their black players. The size of our ethnic minority community has changed much of our life in Britain, not least our eating habits. By the 1990s, the turnover of the 10,000 or so Indian restaurants in the country reached 1.5 billion, more than the coal, steel and shipbuilding industries <laughs> combined. For those who reckon that faith groups contribute to the stability and social progress of communities, 
the increase in the active membership of the organized religions practiced by Asian immigrants and their sons and daughters will be a welcome offset to the decline in the numbers active in the Christian denominations. The Prince of Wales said that as sovereign, he would aspire to be defender of faith rather than defender of the faith. By the late 1990s, there were five times as many Muslims as there had been 30 years before. There were more Muslims here than Methodists. The anxieties that result from this development are largely the consequences of what is happening globally within the Islamic communion and within Western Asia rather than within our own country. And this in turn is a factor which is aggravated by the spread of terrible ideas as well as good ones through the internet. The internet extends by incalculable amounts our access to information as well as the choices we can make. This is not always a good thing. Indeed, it can be a very bad thing as the propagation of extremist illiberal views and the easy avail availability of pornography show. We know from the number of British extremists joining Islamic jihadists abroad that we face a worrying problem <coughs> of dealing with why they're willing recruits and what happens to them if or when they come home. Tony Jutt, the uh, great left-wing historian, now alas, dead. He described the history of the post-war years as the story of Europe's reduction. Looking at the recovery which European countries made from the blasted and ransacked ruins of the 1940s, I don't think this is wholly fair. But for all of us in Europe, there has been a reduction in relative terms, not least economic. And this is as true of Britain as it is of others. Indeed, in the long sweep, it is more true of Britain. Since the end of the 19th century, Britain has been growing more slowly than its rivals in Europe. For example, France and Germany, and even, wait for it, even for a period, Italy. Our GDP has naturally increased, growing between three and fourfold since the end of the war. But there hasn't been much evidence since then of to the victors the spoils. In 1947, Britain exported as much as France, Germany, Italy, Benelux, Norway and Denmark combined. Our neighbours' currencies then were pretty worthless. I recall one senior Treasury official observing wryly on his retirement that he had begun his time as a young civil servant by helping to organise the defence of the Deutschmark. Looking back on what had happened to the British and German economies since then, he found it difficult to regard his career as being blessed by professional success. Germany's GDP these days is about a third larger than ours. Thatcher's, Blair's and Cameron's Britain weighs in globally in economic and other ways well below Churchill's, Attlee's and Macmillan's. Nevertheless, per capita income in this country trebled between 1950 and the millennium, though we should note that the increases from generally lower bases were faster 
in France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands and Spain, with higher annual per capita growth rates in each of them. Like them, we have become more prosperous, which is demonstrable in many ways. Home ownership has risen to over 70% and our households are full of possessions once rare but today taken for granted. Central heating, refrigerators, washing machines, televisions, telephones are common. We drive in our cars to supermarkets to buy kiwi fruit, ready-made lamb passanda and other frozen delights. The jury is out, I think, on whether the extraordinary dominance of cooking shows on television <laughs> has raised the quality of home cooking in Britain's kitchens. But we certainly eat better when we go out. My mother used to have to buy olive oil at the chemist. I recall going to our first family meal at an Italian restaurant in London called the Spaghetti House. There was, of course, a lamp on the table made from a bottle encased in wicker. <laughs> Such an exotic childhood. So life is better for most of us today. For instance, modern white goods removing some of the drudgery from women's lives, and perhaps, judging certainly by my sons-in-law, younger men also playing a greater role in the home. However, too many women still have to balance the economic necessity or the professional satisfaction of going out to work with expensive childcare, which is inadequately supported by the state in comparison with several other North European countries. More women are in employment and legislation has been enacted to narrow pay differentials. But women still suffer from covert discrimination, with too few getting into senior positions in business, public service, politics and universities. This summer's government reshuffle, which purported to be directed towards the government's image problem with female voters, was treated by some of the press as a Downing Street catwalk. We still have a long way to go to make our society fair for half its members. At least universities have vastly expanded access for women who now outnumber men in higher education. Fewer women today marry and more of them who do get divorced. The number of divorced women in the country has increased sevenfold in 40 years. Men and women can now marry or form a civil partnership with members of the same sex. Many, especially younger people, regard this as a mark of how much more tolerant and civilised we've become. In 1951, the Lord Chamberlain, responsible for censorship in our theatres, wrote to the then Lord Chancellor asking whether he should respond to heavy pressure on him to lift the existing ban on plays in which there was any reference to homosexuality or lesbianism. The Lord Chancellor, the wise Lord Jowett, New College, me repair that. The reference to New College that did it. <laughs> Wisely favoured lifting this proscription, noting that censorship frequently defeats its own object and that under modern conditions there was much to be said for free and open discussion. 
But it wasn't until 1966 that legislation was successfully introduced to implement the Wolfenden Committee's recommendation that homosexual acts in private between consenting adults should cease to be unlawful. This helped to turn the page on the disgraceful prosecution of men and women because of their sexual preferences. We also stopped flogging violent criminals and hanging murderers. But when I was seeking to become a Conservative parliamentary candidate in the 1970s, the attitudes of aspirant MPs to capital punishment still features more prominently in interviews than any other subject. I suppose some would blame the rapid rise in crime in subsequent decades on these liberal measures, though most experts maintain that demography, relative levels of prosperity, unemployment levels, and varying regimes of police reporting are more likely causes. Yet recently, crime figures have fallen sharply to their lowest level in over 30 years, a speeding up in a trend evident since the mid-1990s. Perhaps researchers at Cardiff University were correct to suggest that a decline in disposable income and a simultaneous fall in binge drinking had something to do with this. The relationship between alcohol and violent crime is well attested. We've dealt pretty effectively with one consequence of alcohol misuse, namely road accidents. So I offer three cheers for Barbara Castle, much abused at the time for the introduction of the breathalyzer. Her courage saved lives and changed dramatically some of our social habits. Evidence and reason, as she discovered then, are not always present in the public discussion of policy. Hence, I suppose, the ludicrous position we are in on drugs, an area in which tabloid newspapers terrify politicians into inaction. While we're more tolerant today, are we more equal and should we wish to be? I'll spare you an as a statistical assault, but I find persuasive the argument that the gap between the very richest and the poorest has been growing, and that it's the poorest who pay the biggest proportion of their income in tax. Four other aspects of inequality appear to me to demand attention. First, there's plainly been an attenuation of the sense of seemliness on the part of some of those to whom our community would have looked in the past to set an example. I apologise if this seems a touch matronly. I'm sure, however, that it's true. The grossest manifestation has been the level of top salaries paid in some parts of the economy and the frequent lack of any perceivable relationship for much of the time between performance and reward. The gap between top pay in many firms and median earnings is far greater than in comparable foreign companies other than in the US. I suppose this is all part of the disagreeable marketization of too much of Britain, oddly under both main political parties, in which, as Michael Sandel and others have argued, price of, uh, often overwhelms 
any sense of value. Even Peter Mandelson, St. Catherine's, <laughs> is apparently no longer, quote, intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich. <laughs> Second, the economic dominance of London and the southeast in Britain has grown. London is a great and exciting international city. Unlike Mr. Farage, or as he was known at school, Mr. Farage, <laughs> I do not find the number of languages spoken in my train compartment on the way to and from work disturbing. It's a mark of London's attraction as a commercial magnet. But there has been a growing gap, somewhat paradoxical, between both economic opportunities and affordability inside London and outside the capital. This is caused in part by the extent to which home ownership is so privileged as a form of saving and by the over-centralisation of England, which has increased in my lifetime with the diminution of local government autonomy. The referendum campaign on Scottish independence is, I understate the point, plainly opening up a serious debate about how, wish to be gov how we wish to be governed throughout the United Kingdom, with serious devolution of taxation and spending responsibilities to more local and regional levels. A third area for concern is the generational division between the retired and the soon-to-retire and the young and economically active who have to pay for the benefits and pensions of their parents. David Willett's Christchurch has written very well about how members of the baby boomer generation, those born at about the same time as I was and over the next 20 or 30 years, have stolen their children's future, taking a large share of the available jobs, houses and welfare, extracting 118% more from the welfare state than they put in, and establishing a cultural and political dominance. Given that the elderly are more likely to vote in elections than their children and grandchildren, the prospects of trying to deal with these unfair imbalances are slim. Fourth, when I was a schoolboy, there was an obvious ladder of opportunity for the talented young from poorer families. Selection at 11, a product of the great Rab Butler's 1944 Education Act, was discredited by insufficient investment in secondary modern and technical schools in comparison with grammar schools, and by the inflexibility of the system. Grammar schools are not going to be recreated, but one education minister after another, Adonis and Gove, for example, have tried to deal with the consequences of their abolition and to raise the quality of public education, which has always been a primary motor of social mobility. Survey after survey note that the children who do worst in our education system are white, especially white boys, from poor families. The employment prospects of those leaving school or university are far better here than in most other European countries. Admittedly, average unemployment levels are higher than those to which we were accustomed 40 or 50 years ago. 
but we do seem to have a more flexible and open labour market than the majority of our neighbours, even if our productivity levels cause concern. Very few European countries, the Netherlands is one of the few examples, is one of the fewer few exceptions, manage to combine high employment with high productivity. Many more of us today, of course, work in service industries than in manufacturing. Our share of world trade in manufactured goods fell from 30% after the war to under 8% by the early 1980s, and the proportion of the labour force employed in manufacturing showed a similar decline. But I don't believe that we should overdo the argument about the deindustrialization of Britain, even if we question our excessive dependence on financial services. Britain was, it is true, once an industrial giant, the workshop of the world. We've fallen to 11th place among the world's manufacturers. That's what Adam Smith would have told us to expect as other countries make what we and others want to buy at a cheaper price than we would charge ourselves. <coughs> we still have world-class companies in aerospace, pharmaceuticals, electronics, engineering and other sectors, and we've witnessed in recent years the revival of car and motorbike manufacturing. We've also seen since the 1980s the privatisation of nationalised industries with greater success in some areas than in others. One of the most marked changes in the last half century is the collapse of confidence and trust in some of our institutions. Despite occasional flurries of controversy, the monarchy has survived in extremely good shape, very largely thanks to the dutiful service of Her Majesty the Queen and her consort. The Queen has been the very model of a constitutional monarch. The monarchy is an institution which still commands a healthy, positive level when people are asked to say which institutions give them a sense of pride and which make them feel ashamed. Others similarly well-placed include the National Health Service, the Armed Forces and the BBC. Our educational system and the police have only very narrow positive margins. In 1962, the Royal Commission on the Police noted that, and I quote, it is not generally disputed that there is a kind of relationship between the policeman and the man in the street in this country which is of the greatest value. I'm not sure that anyone, not least the Home Secretary, would make such a statement today. Institutions which have seen plummeting levels of support include the City of London, national newspapers and Parliament. Banking scandals doubtless explain the city's low standing. The hacking saga and the abuse of press freedom also have obvious consequences. Newspapers which were once national papers of record have been dumbed down, tabloidized. Perhaps this is a result of the collapse in newspaper readership and the scramble for circulation in a declining market. As for the gap between pride and shame about Parliament, last year a poll showed 30% more people felt shame than pride. 
This may reflect the general alienation from the party political structures that sustain government, as well as particular scandals like that over expenses, itself a result of the failure of leadership in getting us to face up both to the excessive number of MPs and to their inadequate remuneration. The political parties have seen dramatic falls in their membership, which is now comfortably exceeded by organisations like the National Trust and the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. <laughs> I'm sure that people still care about political issues, but find it difficult to fit their own often eclectic opinions into the ideological boxes which the political parties seem to represent. Our principal political parties increasingly resort to what in Australia is called dog-whistle politics, appealing to what they believe their smaller and smaller band of committed supporters most want to hear. The trouble is that there aren't many dogs out there when the whistle blows. <laughs> the most successful political leaders try to appeal beyond a few faithful hounds. Writing in 1968, my predecessor as Chancellor of the University, Roy Jenkins, who was then also Chancellor of the Exchequer, noted that, and I quote, ever since the war, we've been living in the heritage which Sir Winston Churchill bequeathed us in 1945. But although he went on, we came out of the war as victors, our position has been weakened, whereas that of America and Russia has been strengthened. British history since 1945 has consisted largely of coming to terms with this situation. He went on to describe decolonisation and our efforts to cling on to a precarious position as the third of the great powers. He pointed out that we could no longer play a role as the world's policeman. Yet we should not settle, he said, for turning in on ourselves, little Englanders. He saw the way forward for Britain as becoming a member of the European Union. At that stage, the aspiration of a growing number of politicians and newspapers whose fulfilment was blocked by President de Gaulle's veto. I don't find anything in Roy Jenkins' analysis, analysis with which to disagree, though I might question whether we've ever really come to terms with our reduced status. The geostrategic story needs to be brought up to date. We no longer live in a world dominated by two superpowers. Russia is a declining nation, kept globally relevant by its energy reserves, its nuclear weapons, and its ability and willingness to cause trouble. <laughs> America is still a superpower, the only country which matters everywhere, a cultural and commercial magnet spending as much on its military assets as the next 10 big spenders combined. But the open rule-based global marketplace, which America more than any other country created, has now been joined by the larger Asian, Latin American and African players. Their economic clout, based in part on their sheer size, frequently high domestic savings, and the comparative advantage of cheap labour has given them political as well as commercial muscle. Add to this the declining authority of international institutions created in the wake of the Second World War, 
the complexity of many global issues like nuclear proliferation and the dysfunctional nature of the American political system, allied to public wariness in that country about foreign adventures. And you have some of the main ingredients of a world in which the order to which we were accustomed has fractured and even broken down. I don't believe that today's world is necessarily more dangerous. In my first term at this university, America was coping with the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were walking along the edge of a precipice with nuclear Armageddon as a real prospect if we lost our balance. The end of the Cold War, namely the collapse of the Russian Empire in Europe and of what was perceived to be a global communist threat, is undoubtedly one of the two most significant political events in my lifetime, the other, I suppose, being the rise of China, to the sort of position it held historically. This is not necessarily a more dangerous world. Fewer people died in the first decade of this century as a result of conflict than in the Cold War years when so many surrogate war wars were fought. The danger today, I think, is, is one we should recognise in this centenary year of the outbreak of the First World War. We can easily delude ourselves, as Edward Gray, Balliol, and others did in 1914, that we have been so generally successful at conflict resolution and management in the last few years that success will continue to bless our weary and desultory efforts. The worry is that one of the disputes that periodically hit our newspaper's front pages will explode out of control. The never-ending Israel-Palestine struggle, the turmoil in the Arab world, Western Asia as a whole, and the Sahel, the Sino-Japan tensions in many part, in part unresolved leftovers from the Second World War, or Russia's Tsarist dreams. At the end of a period which has been, in a sense, an epilogue to the two great wars, how do we now shape a future which is safe and prosperous, and what can, Brit bring, when what can Britain bring in its reduced state to this task, something which is plainly in our national interest? I read a newspaper article last month at a time when there had been much press discussion about whether we should take a more vigorous public position on the Gaza tragedy, on the behaviour of Russia in the Ukraine, and on our legal and moral responsibilities in Hong Kong. An article which suggested that big visions and loud rhetorical noises in foreign policy were an absurd and, and embarrassing distraction for a country which was now medium-sized with declining military clout and an economy barely discharged from the high dependency ward. Admittedly, there's nothing to be said for talking a much bigger game than you can play. And we might ask ourselves from time to time, how much sustained attention during the course of his working week our greatest ally in the White House gives to the British position on anything at all? But first, we should remember that we do still count for something in the world. Take what is called soft power. Our higher education is still the second best in the world, 
and I hope that in framing our immigration policy, we will recall that one quarter of the members of the American Academy of Sciences were born abroad. There is a close relationship in America between its university system, receptiveness to immigration, and the culture of innovation, which should be a model and inspiration for a country of our size. Our cultural institutions are hugely admired around the world. Our language is spoken everywhere, and the BBC's World Service is listened to by hundreds of millions, because it's trusted to tell the truth, not least about Britain. Our aid programmes are generous and as well run as any country's. All that and much more matters. Our armed forces too are admired, though the process of running down their strength, described by Roy Jenkins, has continued apace with the relative weakening of our economy and the growing costs of welfare and health. The gap between the number of our ships and the number of our captains and admirals has continued to expand. <laughs> Sadly, our Foreign Office, which has been much admired in the past for its comprehensive professionalism, can't escape the inevitable consequences of cuts in its budget and the downgrading of some of its core functions like accurate and comprehensive political reporting, something which the President of Trinity has drawn attention to. I wonder how much we know these days about what has been happening in Ukraine and Western Asia. The diminishing of this once considerable national asset may not matter very much if you take the view that our main, maybe only real national interest abroad is to facilitate export sales, partly by observing the ridiculous rule that we should never say boo to a large and rich goose and should avoid allowing too much moralizing to affect what we do and what we sell. All this sits oddly with our long-term obsession with that slippery concept of sovereignty which is at the heart of our European psychodrama. There will, I'm sure, be other occasions when I'll be able to set out my views on our membership of the European Union. We are, after all, promised by one of the parties a referendum on this subject, a further degradation of our parliamentary democracy. Today, I only want to set the question in the context of our strategic choices. We are, as I've argued, a reduced country, but by no means a negligible force in the world. How much additional sovereignty would we have as a medium-sized country on our own, with most of our principal allies thinking that we had taken leave of our senses, blown hither and yon by global forces, and trying as we stand on tiptoes to look some of the global giants in the eye? As you can see from many examples of the trade negotiations between large countries and much smaller ones, it is not easy to climb into bed with elephants. Much of the debate about Europe concerns matters which I won't discuss today. For example, the proposition that we could negotiate a departure from the European Union, which retained nevertheless all the elements of market access that we fancy, a negotiation in short in which they give and we take. But that's not the main point I want to make. 
When we decided that it was in our national interest to apply for membership of the European community, our share of global exports was about 8%. We were, in other words, a bigger hitter, a much bigger hitter than we are today. But we re reckoned then, with that 8% share, that it would be too cold outside the community on our own. Now our share of global exports is 3.5%. Do we really think that it's now in our national interest to fly solo? As one of Samuel Beckett's characters noted, you're on earth, there's no cure for that. <laughs> the national interest lies in reforming the European Union, in my view, not leaving it. And in the meantime, going out of our way <laughs> to lose as many friends as we can. <laughs> our present approach to European politics is depressing. I find it difficult to tot up the political and potential rewards. It reminds me sadly of the economist Herb Stein's first law of economics. Things that can't go on forever, don't. The present approach to Europe can't go on forever. The simple mantra should be, reform, don't leave. We need to complete the single market, especially in services, 70% of Europe's economy, and in e-commerce. We need a single energy policy to give ourselves a better chance of conducting a sensible and independent foreign policy. We need to complete free trade negotiations with the United States. We must find a better balance between subsidiarity and integration, giving more say to national parliaments over the conduct of European business. And we must get serious about Europe's common, not single, foreign and security policy, especially with regard to the unstable countries around our borders and in Western Asia. That will require stronger and better coordinated armed forces. In some European countries, the armed forces resemble little more than well-armed pension funds. When the NATO treaty was signed in 1949, the band apparently played, I've got plenty of nothing. <laughs> it would, of course, be a much more suitable theme tune for European security policy today. Margaret Thatcher, Somerville, is almost as often quoted on Europe as Winston Churchill. But it's interesting how selective are the quotations, at least from her years in office. Yes, she wanted reform, but yes, too, she believed that our strategic interests lay inside a reformed European Union. In her famous lecture in Bruges in 1988, she summarized her position like this. Britain does not dream of some cosy, isolated existence on the fringes of the European community. Our destiny is in Europe, as part of the community. Looking back over the years, I'm not particularly depressed by the reduction in our relative global position. That was probably in large part inevitable. But I do feel sad about two things. First, that we have still not defined our national interest in a way that corresponds with reality. 
we seem to want to create our own virtual reality and ask the rest of the world to conform to it. This is play-acting, not serious foreign policy. Second, going back to what I said earlier about our loss of a sense of the importance of value and not just price, I believe we're in danger of developing an, em an emaciated vision of the common good and losing much of the shared sense that we used to have of the purposes of public action, its obligations and its possibilities. But you can't put that into numbers. And maybe I'm wrong, just another grumpy old man, a 70-year-old with his own teeth, <laughs> uh, but maybe with too much attitude. Thank you very much indeed.